Um, you're going to need a Bible, and so why don't you go ahead and grab it, and you can turn to the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in chapter 11 this morning. Um, today we are, are studying the final great miraculous sign of Jesus besides His own death and resurrection, but if you remember early on in John, we talked about John specifically lays out this, this series of signs meant to identify that Jesus is the Messiah. He is who he says he is. And if you remember way back, right, uh, Jesus turning water into wine, we were told in John chapter 2, this was the first sign that Jesus did. And we've seen others now, right? The, the healing of the man who couldn't walk, the healing of the man born blind, all of these very specific signs that Jesus performs. And so John chapter 11, we're at the final one. And then John chapter 12 kind of moves us into the last final week of Jesus' life leading up to his death and resurrection. So many of you know this story, um, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's interesting, John alone records this miracle. Uh, the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't mention this miracle, John alone mentions it. And like I said, most of us probably know at least some of the details of this miracle. So here's where we want to go this morning. Uh, it might be a little bit different. Um, I, I struggled this week to go, okay, where exactly do we split this up? If we split it here, well then the next two weeks are essentially the same message because the same themes are there. So we want to actually take the time and read verses 1 through 44, the entire miracle. And then what I want to do is just make three passes through it, looking at three specific traits of Jesus. And so there might be stuff that we're like, ah, but you didn't explain that verse, and you'll have to dig in on your own. But specifically, this text, I believe, shows us the love of Jesus, the timing of Jesus, and the power of Jesus. And so that, those are the three things we want to focus on this morning. So John 11, I'll start reading in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you, gonna, are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. 
but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, to them, unbind him and let him go. The reading of God's word. Whew. We, should, we could just go, right? Church dismissed. I mean, that is a, an amazing, amazing story uh, that we have in John 11. So like I said, three things, three quick things that we want to look at, three passes that we'll kind of take through the text, and, and, and we might jump around a little bit. But first off, um, we're introduced to this family, um, the, these siblings, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And we're told a little bit of detail in, in verse 2 that Mary was the one who anointed Jesus with ointment. And it's interesting, but that, that story actually comes in chapter 12. 
But it's like John knew that, that, that the, the, the readers, the listeners would know, oh, we know Mary, we know Martha, we know Lazarus. Yes, that was the one that anointed Jesus. And we'll read about that story in a couple of weeks. So we're told that this guy Lazarus is sick and his two sisters reach out to Jesus to inform him. Right in verse 3, all they say, that they don't ask Jesus to come. All they're, they're, they're just letting Jesus know, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, I want to remind you at the end of chapter uh, 10, Jesus is now across the Jordan. He's left Jerusalem because people want to kill him and he's kind of staying away. And we're told that, that, that he's being summoned to Bethany. And Bethany is a town that is about two miles from Jerusalem. So, so we're getting a little bit closer to the danger zone, essentially. So all throughout this narrative, the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus has this intense love for this family. And I know that we would all say, right, yes, Jesus loves people, right? And we sing the song, Jesus loves me, this, that. We know, we, we talk about, yes, Jesus loves us. But here in John 11, you, you really see his love for people on display. A couple of verses. Verse 3, Jesus specific, or uh, the sisters rather, specifically sell, uh, tell Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. And it's, they don't even say his name, but it's like we know that Jesus will know who we're talking about because he loves Lazarus. Right? And that word love is actually phileo, which is brotherly love. So it's like this kind of bond that brothers, that siblings have. Jesus, the guy that you have a brotherly affection for, he's sick. Even in verse 5, we're told this sentence, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And that word love is actually agape, which is a different type of love. It means to esteem, to take pleasure uh, in, to wish well for someone. It's kind of this sacrificial love that, that we, we talk about. And so in verse 5, Jesus, we're told, he has this kind of deep love and affection for this family. Even in verse 11, Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Like, I don't know about you, but when you think about Jesus, do you picture Jesus as just having really good friends? I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we view Jesus as divine because he is divine. He's fully God. But sometimes we do that at the expense of his humanity. Right? That we kind of have this view maybe like subtly that, well, yeah, Jesus was so special that he kind of glowed in the dark and he hovered and maybe he floated around. And every picture is like, you know, he's got a halo and, and he was just so wise and so smart and so divine that surely he didn't have just buddies that he hung out with. Right? He's God. He doesn't have best friends that he calls, I guess calls, best friends uh, that he texts. No, of course not. But he doesn't have those kind of close relationships. He almost, we kind of, well, he's fully God. So maybe he's like unapproachable. Um, I, I remember one of my favorite authors and preachers is a guy by the name of Daryl Johnson. Um, he wrote probably one of the best books I've ever read on the book of Revelation called Discipleship on the Edge, an amazing book. He, uh, another one uh, on the Lord's Prayer called 57 Words That Changed the World. And then he's got sermons that I've listened to. He's just uh, an amazing pastor, writer, um, really enjoy um, reading and listening to him. And then one year at our denomination's 
conference, he was the, the speaker. And so I'm kind of like, you know, we talked last week about being a fanboy. I was kind of like, Daryl Johnson, maybe I'll like share an elevator with him. And, you know, but he kind of seemed like untouchable, right? The Daryl Johnson. And I remember we ran into each other in the lobby. And I was like, hey, Daryl, nice to meet you. My name's Andrew. And we had this great conversation. It was like, oh, right, he's just a human being as well, <laughs> right? And so yet we have sometimes, and you do this too with certain people. You're like, oh, man, if I ever met them, they're like untouchable. Like, oh, I would freak out if I met so-and-so or whatever. Some of us treat Jesus like that. We're like, he just seems so, so unapproachable. I mean, fully god and yet we, we see that here's this family that Jesus had brotherly affection for Lazarus. He loved this family. They were his friends. Jesus is fully human. He's a, he's a human man. He had friends. He loved them. He probably joked around with them. Jesus loved people. Now, jump ahead a little bit to when Jesus arrives, right? We'll get back to his conversation with the the disciples, but he, he arrives and he, he first has a conversation with Martha and then he has a conversation with Mary. And Mary comes, we're told, and, and she falls at his feet. And in verse 33, we get this really interesting glimpse into who Jesus is. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, that's an interesting verse, and, and I actually think that our English translations um, soften it quite a bit. Most of you, it says some type of thing that Jesus was moved and he was troubled. But literally, in the original language, um, the, the word that is used there is embry myome, which means that Jesus was angry. And you kind of go, well, wait a second. Jesus was, was, was angry in his spirit and the word trouble means he was agitated. Sometimes it's translated that he was shaking. If you've ever seen someone who was so upset at something that literally it's like, man, your body is shaking right now. That's the word. That, that Jesus, actually, it's interesting, in extra biblical Greek, so what I mean by that is other Greek uh, documents that aren't in our Bible, this word, embry meomai, is used to describe horses snorting. And I'm not going to try and do <laughs> or whatever, right? But that's the word. So literally, it says that Jesus looks and he sees all of these people weeping and, and crying. And he is angry and his body is shaking. And you go, why? Why is Jesus angry? And, and again, it doesn't really fit the, the story, the picture that, that we have. He was angry in his spirit, and he shook himself. So why is Jesus angry? A couple of reasons, I, I think. One, Jesus is angry as he looks at the effects of sin, sickness, and death in this fallen world that wreaks so much havoc and sorrow. I think that Jesus is looking at the devastating effects of sin and death, and I know that he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But I think Jesus is angry because he sees Mary and Martha, his friends, and he sees all of these Jewish people who are experiencing deep sorrow, deep suffering, deep pain, and it's like it's not meant to be like this. I mean, this is one of the reasons that Jesus came. He came to defeat death, and now he's staring at the effects of death in his world that he created, 
So even Hebrews 2 says, since therefore the, sh- the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I think Jesus is angry at death. Like, I don't know if you've ever been so overcome with uh, someone in your family that has passed away, or I don't know if you've ever read, like, oh, so-and-so, they were killed, and they were 30 years old. I mean, I get angry at that, and you do too, right? You go, it's not supposed to be like that. We're not supposed to be plagued with death and sorrow and mourning. That's why Jesus is angry. But it goes deeper than that. I also think Jesus is angry at the unbelief that he sees, because the men and women that are in this crowd, they're grieving. They're grieving as if, as if they have no hope. They're actually grieving like pagans who have no hope for the future. And I, I think he, he's actually he's seeing a grief in the crowd that is leading to despair. And here's why I say that. In verse 33, when it says that Mary is weeping and the crowds are weeping, that word literally means wailing, like loud yelling and crying. And, and in that culture, um, sometimes um, it, it was a show that you would put on. Actually, in, in Jewish culture, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you were, when someone died, each person was expected that you would hire at least two professional mourners. So people who you would pay to come to the funeral and put on a show of weeping and wailing. Oh, Lazarus, why did you die? And they, they might not even know Lazarus. They're just paid to be there because that was their culture. We want to put on a good show. Now, we're not told specifically if, if that was happening, but I can tell you this is a Jewish family. Someone died. They would have paid people to be there to mourn. And it is a loud weeping and wailing of someone who has no hope. It's just despair. And so I think one of the reasons Jesus is angry is they have no belief in who he is. That this is the Messiah, the Son of God. Clearly he's going to do something. And they're just mourning with no hope. And then lastly, I think one of the reasons Jesus might be angry is that he's, ang- he's angry at the intrusion of the crowds. And we're going to get back to, but Jesus had this really beautiful moment with his friend, uh, Martha, alone. And I, I believe that Jesus summons Mary, right? Martha says, Mary, the teacher's calling you. And what happens? That the Jews who are with Mary think, oh, she's going to the tomb, and they all follow her. And so a really private moment between Jesus and his friend is interrupted by all of these crowds weeping and wailing and yelling. And I think Jesus is, is angry at the crowds, and then we see some, like, like, these are deep emotions that Jesus is feeling, right? He's angry in his spirit. He's agitated. Verse 35, we're told that Jesus weeps. Now, we, we, we need to know this is different than the weeping that's going on in verse 33. The weeping that, that Mary and the crowds are doing, it's loud wailing and yelling. The word for Jesus weeping in verse 35 is that he's shedding quiet tears. There is no wailing here. There's no, there's no yelling out from Jesus here. He's just shedding quiet tears for his friends. I mean, this fits, right? Isaiah 53, talking about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. 
acquainted with grief. I mean, this is not just like a, a, a theory. Jesus was acquainted with grief. He's weeping at his friend's tomb. He's a man of, of sorrows. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So I think one of the things that John chapter 11 shows us is the deep emotion, the deep love that Jesus has for people. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were his friends. He cared for them. And if you think about the Gospels, just go back in your mind and think of all the ways that Jesus loved people so well. Most often, those who had never been loved by anybody the outcasts of society. Think about the, the lepers and in leprosy in that culture. I mean, you were shunned from society. You're not allowed to go near people. If you do, you have to announce yourself so that people don't ever touch you. And what does Jesus do? Lepers come to him and he goes to them and he touches them. Probably some of them, maybe the first time they've had human contact in like decades. And he loves them. Jesus loved Women, and in that society, women were seen as lesser than. And so think through, right, the woman who's bleeding and she reaches out and touches Jesus and he uses a term of affection for her, like little child, your faith has made you well. And the, the prostitute who anoints his, his feet and his head and he loves these people who were outcasts. Children, children in that society, we don't want to see them. We don't want to hear them, right? Lesser than, I'm like, well, that, I get that sometimes. Um, but children, they were just a nuisance. Like we don't, they're lesser than. And what does Jesus do? He welcomes them. And his disciples are like, ah, children, sorry. This is Jesus. He's a, and he says, let them come to me. I mean, Jesus loved people. So do you know the immense love of Jesus for you? And I don't just mean in theory. Like, do you know how, how much God loves you? I think sometimes we Christians have a view of God where he's just kind of always disappointed. Right? That he's just kind of looking at us and he's just angry all the time. And he's like this stern, angry, disappointed, grumpy grandfather. And he's just watching us and he's just, ugh, idiots. Right? And I know we like chuckle, but I think some of you actually view God like that. He's just disappointed in you all the time. He's just angry at you all the time. But that is not the view of God that we get from Scripture. And it's like in theory, yeah, I know that God loves me, but do you actually believe it? Right? The image that we're given throughout Scripture is that God is actually your Father. That if you are in Christ God's actually adopted you into his family. You are his kid. You are a beloved son or daughter of God. He loves you. Um, I even think about my own kids. Like we have three kids. Um, they're a little, bit, a little bit older now, almost nine, almost seven, almost three. But when we first had um, Lucy, I, I was like, I'm not going to be one of those parents that's like, oh, posting pictures. And look, she smiled and she passed gas and all these normal things that I'm like, no one cares about that. And then I became that parent because I'm like, my child is super special. I, don't, I think she's advanced. She does things. And, and then you take pictures. And why? Because I, I'm like so in love with this child, right? I love this kid and I love our second one Ruby and then our third one Oliver and each one it's like you just you're gaga over them you just love them so much like that's like you're God's children 
I mean, look, he looks at you and he goes, those are my kids. I love them. I am crazy about them. But we have this view where God, he's just looking at us and he's just disgusted and he's angry. He's frustrated with us and he's disappointed in us. And I know especially when we, when we struggle and we sin and we mess up, we have this view that God's like, well, can't believe I saved them. Not worth it. Like you think about like when my kids learned how to walk, right? And some of you might be in that stage or you remember it, right? When your kid first learns how to walk, you, you, they start by holding your hands or holding the coffee table. And then, then they, they take those first few steps, and then inevitably they, they fall. But no parent that I know, no parent that I know, when their kids take those first few steps and then fall, they don't go, what an idiot. Doesn't even learn how to walk. Can only take three steps in a row. No, it's like, oh my goodness, they took three steps. Get the camera. Everyone needs it. It's like, listen, everybody walks. We get it. But it's like, look, they're taking three steps. It's amazing. And I think we view God, right, when we're, when we're striving to obey him and striving to follow him and we mess up, we view God like that going, idiots, can't do anything right. No, God is like, yes, they took two steps. That's my kid. God has a love for you that you can't even fathom, like an immense love for you. Listen to this, 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Like, you're his kids. Zephaniah 3, the Lord our God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He'll exalt over you with loud singing. God rejoices over you. Romans 8, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do you know the love of God for you? Um, this, This answers the question, sometimes I wonder why is our worship of God so muted? And I don't mean just like singing, but certainly it affects our singing, but why is our worship, why sometimes are we just kind of like, meh, about God? I think it's because you don't realize the immensity of his love towards you. Because many of us, we think that, well, yeah, we kind of deserve God's love, and I'm a pretty good person, and I can kind of do it on my own. But when you realize, I mean, you're Lazarus. You're dead in your sins. You are spiritually dead and God solely because of his grace and love for you wakes you up and calls you into his family and he draws you and you're his child now I think we just we just forget about that and when you understand the love of Jesus then following him is not a duty it is a delight to follow him um we we have time so Isaiah 6 think about Isaiah Isaiah has this vision of God and the 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 the, the angels are, are flying and they're covering their face and their feet and they're shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and there's an earthquake and all, like just picture seeing a vision of God and Isaiah's response, rightly so, is woe is me, I'm lost. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is saying, I'm a dead man. I am going to be obliterated. I've seen the King, and I'm a sinful, wretched man. And then one of the seraphim flies over and takes a burning coal and touches it to to Isaiah's mouth and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Like God says, Isaiah, everything that you said about yourself is true. You are a wretch. You are a wicked man. And yet, look, I'm actually taking your sin and your guilt away. And then God God asks, well, who who am I going to send? And what does Isaiah say? Me! I'm right here. Send me. Notice that, is there any sense of duty in that? No. It's all delight. Isaiah goes, well, I guess if someone has to go, fine, God, send me. No, he goes, I'm I'm, I'm here, God. Please send me. And God even says, do you realize you're going to preach and no one's going to care what you have to say? I don't care. I've been forgiven. I've been shown love and grace and mercy. Please send me, God. That's, that's us, right? My, I would say if you are a Christian and you view following Jesus as a duty that you have to do, you have not experienced the love and grace of God. Because when you experience the love and grace of God, it is not a duty. It is a delight to follow Jesus. So have you experienced the love of God, the love of Jesus for you? So why start with the love of God, right, in this text? Why, why focus in on the love of Jesus for this family? I think we have to start there because then it helps us when we don't understand the timing of Jesus. Because sometimes God in his wisdom and his sovereignty, his timing makes it feel like he doesn't love us. So just look again. Jesus gets the word about Lazarus. Your friend is sick. And his response is, this isn't going to lead to death. It's for the glory of God. And you kind of go, okay, well, that's odd. And then in verse 5, we're told, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And verse 6 says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And you go, wait a second. Jesus loved this family. And literally, the so there is therefore. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, therefore... Therefore what? Therefore, because he loved them, he stayed two days longer. Wait a second. That's an odd way to show love, right? Because he loved them so much, he waited and allowed Lazarus to die. And we go, well, the timing of this doesn't really make sense. I think this is actually why John put verse 5 in because if it wasn't, we would go, well, Jesus, you don't love this family. Why aren't you rushing to get there to heal him? And so it's like, no, because Jesus loved them so well, he waited two days. He allowed them to go through sorrow and hardship and mourning because he wanted them to witness something way more amazing than if he had just shown up and healed Lazarus. He actually wants to demonstrate his power over death. The miracle that Jesus actually performs confirmed the faith of his disciples and his friends with dramatic power that would have been missed if he had responded immediately to their cry for help. 
And so in verse 7, Jesus tells his disciples, well, let's go to Judea again. And again, then all this confusion is brought up in the disciples. They go, well, wait a second, Jesus. You were literally just almost stoned to death. I don't understand. Why, why should we go back? We just escaped from there. And Jesus in verses 9 and, and, and 10 gives this analogy. Well, there's 12 hours in the day. Walk in the day and you won't stumble. Essentially, Jesus is saying in a different way what he said multiple times already. He, he always does the Father's will. He's basically saying, well, as long as I am doing what my Father wills me to do, then I'll be safe. There's still daylight, right? We're not going to stumble. I'm, I'm obeying God the Father. Because Jesus was walking in perfect obedience to the will of God, then there was no danger of, of him being killed before the appointed time. So think about Jesus' timing. I love this family. Let's wait two more days. You're like, okay. Let's go back to Judea. And his disciples are going, are you crazy? No, trust me. And then in, in verse 17, we're told that they arrive and Lazarus has been dead in the tomb four days. Now, this is a really important detail, and we talk about timing. According to some Jewish sources, the Jews believed that your soul hovered over your body for three days, hoping to re-enter it, and then when the fourth day came, it just kind of like gave up and, and, and leaves. So we kind of go, well, of course that's not true, but that was the thought. You're buried for three days, your soul just kind of waits around, and then by the fourth day, they go, well, okay, this guy's really dead, and then your soul leaves. So we're told it's been four days. And this, think about timing. This is important. So no one can say, well, maybe Lazarus' soul, it's day two, right? Was it actually a, a miracle? And three times, Jesus arrives and three times he's told, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened, right? Verse 21, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Think about timing. Jesus, why did you wait? If you had come right away, my brother wouldn't have have died. Verse 32, Mary says the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Verse 37, the crowd say, could not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Like, why wasn't Jesus here? He could have prevented this. I think often we struggle with God's timing because it seems to not make much sense to us. And here's why. We generally interpret any delay in help any delay in an answer to our prayers, we interpret that in North America as cruelty because our goal is to avoid pain at all costs. And so we get news of, of whatever and we, and we pray and God and his sovereignty and his, his timing seems to not answer our prayers right away. We view that as God being cruel because I had to go through pain. That's unacceptable. Now notice, Martha doesn't lose faith. Even in verse 22, she says, God... Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. But then she says in verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So it's not as if she said, and Jesus, now I'm done being your friend. I'm done following you. She just says, I don't understand why you weren't here, Jesus. And yet, even now, I know that you're, you're going to do something. So you need to know and trust that God loves you when you don't understand his timing. Because like I said, when God's timing interrupts your timing, then oftentimes the first response is, God doesn't love me. Right? You lose the, the job promotion that you really wanted, and you go, why, God? 
You pray and you pray and you pray and your loved one still dies. Or you vote, right, and you're on edge about our country and the leader that you didn't like gets elected. And you go, God's timing, wait a second, why God? You lose your house, you go bankrupt, your, your wandering teenager wanders farther away. Your marriage problems aren't getting better fast enough. And, and oftentimes we look at the timing of God and we go, he must not love me if he's allowing me to go through this kind of stuff. But, but may I suggest to you that usually, and we're going to see that, that, that God's timing is perfect. I shouldn't say usually. It's always perfect. And it's usually to demonstrate his power and his glory and not your own. So when things don't go your way, do you just panic? Is, is immediately your response, well, God's not in control. He clearly doesn't love me. Something's off. Or do you trust his timing because you know his love for you? I mean, Romans eight twenty eight. we know that for those who love God, so followers of Jesus, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Like, do we really believe that? I got fired, I lost my job, and I lost my house. All things work together for good. Right? My marriage is really struggling. And I prayed for my, my loved one to get better and they died. All things work together for good for those who are called. I mean, we, we see in our text, right, the timing of Jesus was very specific. And it did, it did not negate his love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It's actually because he loved them that he allowed them to go through this. And that brings us to our third point. The reason that he allowed them to go through that was to demonstrate his power so that they would believe. In verse 4, Jesus says, it is, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified. He says, Lazarus dying is actually for my glory, Jesus says. Even in verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, but for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. And what we would read that and go, Jesus says he's glad he wasn't there when Lazarus died. How heartless is that? But why? He says, so that you are all going to believe in me. It's my timing and it's my power that's going to be on display. It's time to go. Even in verse 23, he tells Martha, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha thinks that he's talking about this future final resurrection, which will happen, right, on the last day. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. It's the last I am statement of Jesus, this statement of divinity where he says, I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Like, this is the power of Jesus. Jesus goes from abstract belief and what takes place on the last day, this, this final resurrection, he, now he zeroes in into a personalized belief in him alone who can provide it. Jesus not only raises the dead, he himself is the resurrection and the life. Right? They're so closely tied together to Jesus that they're actually embodied in him. And it's only found in relationship to him. Jesus has the power over death. That's what he's saying. And he's going to demonstrate that to Mary, Martha, and the crowds, not just on the last day, but this very day. He says, I, Martha, I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? And she, she answers affirmatively, yes, you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
who's coming into the world. So Jesus says that, and then he actually carries out what he says. Verse 38, he comes to the tomb, and there's a cave with a stone against it, and he, t- and he t- tells uh, people to, to take away the stone, and Martha objects. She goes, ah, Jesus, it's very practical. It's been four days. It's going to really stink, Jesus. <laughs> you roll that stone away, like dead body fumes are going to come out, and, and he says, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God? And then Jesus prays and he thanks his father for what God is going to do. And he thanks for all the people watching who are going to believe. And then he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Literally in in Greek, he shouts, Lazarus, here, outside. That's what he yells. It's amazing. Like, Lazarus, get out here. And what happens? Lazarus, dead for four days, walks out of the tomb. The shepherd calling his sheep by name, right? He knows his sheep. Lazarus, outside. So we've seen this immense love of Jesus. The timing of Jesus is just so perfect, even though it doesn't make sense to anyone. Jesus, why weren't you here? And now you see the great power of Jesus to command a dead man back to life. There's no eight hours of trying to make something happen. Literally two words, here, outside. And the dead obey him. Now, this is what's, what's so amazing. This is not just a miracle. This is actually a pointer to Jesus' own resurrection because so many of the details are the same. There's mourning women, women who are upset and crying at Jesus' tomb. There's grave clothes. We kind of didn't focus on that, but in verse 44, it mentions these linens that Lazarus is, is wrapped in. And in, in Jesus' own resurrection account, it mentions his linens, his grave clothes. The stone at the entrance is the same the tomb. So here's the point of this miracle. Yes, it's Jesus is the Messiah. Who, who else can command the dead to come back to life? But Lazarus still died one day. You realize that. We're not told how, how long he lived for, but he didn't stay alive forever. Jesus gave him a few more years, and he still died. And so you could call this, and again, it's semantics, you could say this was a resuscitation of the flesh, perhaps. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was resurrected forever. It was a transition into a state of permanent glory. And one day we're told Jesus is going to return. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. I mean, Jesus, when he returns, he's going to yell again. I don't know what he's going to say. Maybe here, outside. And all the dead will be raised 
to new life, and I don't know how it's going to work. You'll be reunited with your spirit. And listen, eternity is a physical existence. It's not floating up in clouds somewhere in this disembodied soul. You will live forever with a body, some to eternal life and some to eternal judgment. But Jesus is going to come and he's going to command all the dead to rise. And so here we have this tiny glimpse of him him commanding one man to rise, and one day it'll be everybody. And it will be glorious if you are in Christ, and it will be awful if you are not in Christ. So do you know the love of Jesus for you? Not in theory. Not because, yes, Jesus loves me, this I know, but do you actually know the immense love of God for you? You are His children if you're in Christ. And do you cling to that when the timing of God makes no sense to you? When you go, I don't understand, God, why you are doing things or, or not doing things. And do you actually trust that, okay, I don't understand God's timing, but clearly it's so that he gets glory and it's, I know that it's for my good. And then do you trust and do you know that Jesus has the power over death? We don't, we don't grieve like these crowds were grieving, weeping and wailing and gnashing our teeth and so upset and no hope. I mean, Jesus conquered death. You have nothing to fear if you're in him. You go, yep, I'm going to die one day, but one day Jesus is going to wake me up again, and I'm going to be reunited to my spirit. I'm going to live forever with Jesus. So, Father, I thank you for this unbelievable miracle. And God, I I don't even think our, our minds can fully comprehend how incredible this would have been to see. Jesus, in your power, commanding a dead man to rise. And not using some kind of incantation and not trying for a few days to make something work. Literally two words. Jesus, I just pray that we would know the immense love that you have for us. So many people that I know when I speak with them, it's this view of God that he's just mad at us all the time. And that it doesn't matter what we do, that he's just disappointed and angry and upset at us. And God, I, I, I think that couldn't be farther from the truth. Because of you, Jesus, God looks at us and he sees you. Your perfect righteousness that we are actually adopted into your family, that we are now sons and daughters of the King, beloved by you, God. I I pray that we would know this love, not just in theory, but in reality, that it would affect our worship of you, Jesus, that obeying you and following you wouldn't be this duty that, well, God's angry, so I better obey, so he gets off my back, but that it would be, I so delight in obeying you, because I know who I was and I know what you've saved me from and I know your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. That it would change our motivations, God. And God, I thank you that you, through Jesus, have conquered death. That one day, Jesus, you are going to return and you're going to command all the dead to rise. And it's going to be glorious. So help us to cling to to that when things don't make sense. Help us not to have a fear of death. Help us not to, to mourn as those who have no hope, but that we would just 
quietly trust that Jesus, you are who you say you are, and you demonstrated it time and time and time again. So Father, just continue to do your work in us and just take these things and and just sink them deep into our hearts. And so I just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.